And he was the first person, I think, that basically talked about sound and their work, because he said to me, we can tell if there's something wrong with the equipment because it sounds differently. Mm. Um, That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> the compressor sounds are etched into my memory. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so he was like, yeah, we, so we can tell. We can tell what's what's wrong and what bit of kit is not working. Mm. And then I was like, oh, huh. Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics at the Cavendish Laboratory at the University of Cambridge. Hi, I'm Simone Zagre Barke, a PhD student studying experimental physics. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bismuth, and I lead on communications for the department. Here's a question for you, dear listener. What's the link between music and physics? What is the sound of physics? Today, we're diving into a fascinating world where arts, science, and music intersect. Joining us in our studio are two incredible individuals who have embarked on a journey that brings together the realms of sound, physics, and human emotion. Ayn Bailey is a composer and the second Cavendish Art Science Fellow. The Cavendish Art Science creates encounters between art and science that explore our humanity, the world, and our place within it. Ayn's practice explores sonic autobiographies and the constellation of sounds that form individual and community identities. Her compositions are often inspired by reflections on silence and absence, feminist activism, and architectural acoustics. Dr. Gemma Bale is an assistant professor of medical therapeutics at the University of Cambridge, and she's the head of the Neuro Optics Lab. Sitting at the junction of engineering and physics, her team develops new, non-invasive optical devices to monitor brain metabolism in areas where traditional brain monitoring can't. Lately, she's been exploring the relationship between music and dementia, and it was only a matter of time before she and Ayn's world collided, and a conversation sparked. With Ayn and Gemma, we talk about music, of course, and how our brains react to it, exploring the unknown and bridging the gap between art and science. Stay with us. So welcome both of you, Gemma, Ayn. Hi. Hi, thank you for having us. So our regular listeners will know that we like to start the conversation usually by rewinding all the way back to the beginning to how people got here. Um, but today we thought it'd be best to actually start from the end. So, you know, what brought you two together and um, kind of the context of why we're having this conversation in the first place and this conversation around music, sound and physics. So Gemma, you're interested in how the brain's response to music forms and especially in the context of dementia and, how, and you have connections personally to music as well as a musician and a singer and a Taylor Swift fan, I've heard. <laughs> so how do you see the connection between music and, and neuroscience and how does it tie into your current research on uh, dementia? Well, first, let me just correct that I would never describe myself as a musician or a singer, <laughs> but definitely a Taylor Swift fan. Um, but no, so I, I have been studying the brain using um, optics for my career and um, recently um, really focused on dementia. But then um, there's a huge, huge link between music and dementia that's really, really interesting. 
and I got reading lots of books about the neuroscience of music and how it can be healing in dementia. So um, my lab actually embarked on a, on a research project where we took the entire lab to a music festival to study people's brains there. So that's how we kind of got into um, this sort of space of music. And then I was like fortunate enough to become part of the art science program and met Ayin and yeah, we've had some really fascinating discussions about how music can really impact the brain. And how do you actually look at how music impacts people's brains? That's a good question. So the, the technique that I develop is called near-infrared spectroscopy. Essentially, we're just shining infrared light into people's brains and detecting what comes back and looking at the color of the brain. So if the brain is really, really active, it will be recruiting lots of oxygenated blood to that area. So it will glow kind of brighter red and we can detect that using our, mm. our devices. So um, we can look at different areas of the brain. So particularly we were looking at the auditory cortex, which is kind of above the ear, to see how that's responding to music um, and different kinds of music and also music in different settings. So whether you're alone or together. Mm -hmm. Is that what you were doing in the field and the, the Green Man Festival? Yes, it? exactly. So the reason we went to the Green Man Festival is partly because doing public engagement is so important and rewarding, but um, also because we wanted to collect a really large data set. Um, my lab's quite new and we wanted to sort of build up a database of, of people's brain activities using our technology. Um, we are embarking on a dementia study, but recruitment is slow. We thought if we went to a music festival, we could immediately study lots of people's brains. We weren't imagining the response we did. We managed to study 160 people in the four days at the wow. festival, which was, yeah, incredible. Um, people were so kind and generous with their time. People were queuing to take part in the study, which is amazing. Probably uh, curious as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They were looking at like, why are people wearing these strange hats? Um, <laughs> why, are the, why is there a curtain dividing them? So essentially we set up this experiment. We wanted to um, be able to ask a few different questions. So we had people um, sat opposite each other, wearing our brain monitoring uh, devices. Um, and we got them to listen to different kinds of music, some happy, some sad, and we wanted to see if the emotion of the music would inf influence the brain activity. Um, at first we had them facing each other, but with a curtain between them, so they're essentially listening by themselves. And then we removed that curtain and saw how um, being with somebody else and listening to music together would influence the brain activity. Um, the reasons that we did that, we set up this experiment so we could start to set up a machine learning problem, so can we classify the differences between alone and together or happy and sad music. Um, but our motivations were really for dementia music therapy. So is it more beneficial to treat people with music therapy in a group or is it better to listen to happy music or sad music? So it was really answering um, a lot of questions for us all at once. That's beautiful. Any, any early insights you can give us on? I know you haven't published anything yet, but... So, no, the data is looking really interesting. Um, we're definitely seeing huge differences, particularly between alone and together. One of the biggest, the, the biggest reaction we saw was actually to sad music by yourself, which I don't think we were expecting, but um, we've been, yeah, working with our, our music therapists and uh, musicologists to try and interpret that data. Um, a nice thing that we've seen that we've kind of convinced ourselves that we are really recording real activity is that we see a much stronger um, response on the left side of the brain and that's where we know um, the brain responds better to music. So yeah, we're really excited about our results and yes, please await the incoming <laughs> publication in the next few months. We will, for sure. Um, but that leads us nicely to Ayn actually, and because you've um, also been exploring this connection between music and 
mental health or health in general through this Sonic Stories workshops. Can you tell us a bit more about these and more generally the bond created by the experience of listening to music together? I mean, I would from the outset say that um, I don't really do them in order to explore mental health. I think it's a result, a, a result yeah. that people come away feeling amazing. Um, <laughs> I guess I, I started them in 2017 um, uh, as a study week. I was commissioned to do a study week at Wising Art Centre, which is near here somewhere. Um, and I've been doing them off and on ever since. I've done them with a wide range of people, um, artists, students, um, LGBTQ plus asylum seekers and refugees. Who else? Who else? Who else? Um, but what's, what's the principle of those sessions? So literally, it's very simple. So literally, we I invite people to come. So it's normally a maximum, I like about 12 people. It also depends how much time you have. Like with the LGBTQ group, I mean, there were 30 people at one point because it was such a popular activity that they all wanted to kind of bundle in. So we kind of found a way to do that. Um, literally, people come together and then we play their selections. We all listen together and then I invite them to share why they chose their song sound. And we literally go round and round until we run out of time. So it's very simple, very simple premise. Um, and so it was quite nice, you know, as part of the fellowship to then think about other ways that we I could do that. And so when the opportunity came up to do a workshop with people with dementia, that was like, oh, I wonder how that will work. And it was actually incredible. It was amazing. It was really like, because also with this thing, you know, it gets very emotional very quickly. People do bond very quickly as well, and they share quite intimate and personal things, which mm. is always incredible. And there's all, normally there's always people sharing about the death of a loved one as well. So there are all these kind of, memories that are invoked by whatever whatever sound you know i guess most of us could probably find one song that mm. reminds them of somebody who's no longer here um but yeah and in terms of the workshops that you that you did together specifically looking at people with dementia um i think you mentioned that it was also it was not just those people but the like people that were caring for them and part of um, their general community that came together was there anything that kind of was different to perhaps some of the workshops that you've run before or something that was striking about this one or? I mean, for me, because I haven't worked with, I don't really know anybody with dementia, I think. Um, I think I hadn't, I guess I had a vague idea what that might look like. And I was quite intrigued to discover that there's like a differing ways that people experience dementia I thought was really interesting. Um, but then what was really interesting was that when the time came for their selection, it was almost as though the dementia disappeared, mm. actually, which was wild. You couldn't tell that anybody mm. in that room had dementia, actually. Yeah, I guess it's just a testament to how strongly you bond to music and how mm. it does reach, you know, I guess different parts of your brain or, or kind of you can relate to it differently to the way you would your normal memories. Yeah, exactly. And one thing that was nice with all of these um, people were we managed to reach out to them because they were already involved in a dementia music therapy group. So some of them knew each other, but they all had like this really strong belief that music was really therapeutic for them. And yeah, yeah. people were really 
engage with the music but also it was really I think the thing that jumped out to me the most was just the love between the the carer and the person with dementia and mm. and yeah it was really beautiful it's very tender it was but Gemma you came in as um as an as a participant more than the scientists looking at reactions right yes. can you tell yes. us more a little bit a little bit more about what you were hoping for or what you got from the experience or perhaps the music that you chose <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah um so well when we first discussed this at one point we were discussing okay maybe we could record people's brain activity while they're going through this but then we decided that was probably overcomplicating things and also mm. you know without the constraints of very carefully planned experiment design it just wasn't really going to be meaningful and would probably mm. be a bit of a you know, a distraction. But what we did was we sort of, we introduced the session by talking about like the fact that we'd been at this music festival, we were studying dementia, we were studying music. Um, and then, yeah, it was really great to be part of the um, part of the group. I actually didn't share any music because I am a very emotional person and I knew I'd be too emotional. I still ended up crying at somebody else's song, but, <laughs> um, um, but yes, yeah, so The thing that was really amazing for us, and a few of my PhD students came along as well, was just getting to spend time with people with dementia. And I definitely think at the start of the session, there was sort of a slight divide between us as scientists mm -hmm. and them as people with dementia that might potentially be studied by us as scientists. And we discussed with them, you know, we're, we're, we're planning this, we've actually now started the study, but at the mm -hmm. time we were planning the study of, of people with dementia. And um, it was, there was that initial divide and sort of hesitancy about whether they'd want to be involved in the study. By the end, they really, like everybody saw each other as people and we really had formed this bond and they were, they were really generous with that. Oh, we'd love to get involved. We'd love to, you know, and they were sharing ideas. And um, I think, yeah, it was just really great to spend time with those, with people with dementia and their, and their families and to get to know what their, their motivations for being there and what what might be their motivations for taking part in a, in a study with us so that was that was really great for me has the way that you've been facilitating these workshops kind of changed over time or not at all keep it simple because yeah. um, <laughs> it works and it works across you know like with like many different people um i think the only the thing that i'm i've done actually is actually develop it So now I'm uh, running sessions, like listening sessions, where I'm inviting one person to pick their favorite album or pick an album of significance. And then we listen to the whole album and then I invite them to share about it and we have a chat. So that's like almost like the evolution of it. Mm. Um, and that's gone quite well. Only, I've only done one so far. I've got one coming up in a couple of weeks. That sounds really exciting. Yeah. So, Let's rewind a little bit now. <laughs> um, I and you started your sound journey as a DJ and eventually found yourself in the world of the arts or what you call yourself art art <laughs> between inverted commas. Could you tell us a bit more about how this evolution happened? Uh, yeah, sure. Our arts got, um, <laughs> what I say. Uh, so, um, Yes, I started thinking about making sound while a DJ. A friend of mine suggested that in order to get better DJ gigs, I should make my music. And so I enrolled on a music production course. I think it was Logic I was, I was learning. And then, so I did that for a bit. And then another friend, friend of a friend, invited me to DJ for a dance production 
first one's called Beautiful Me, it was in Cologne in Germany. Um, and so while doing this, I was kind of getting more into thinking about making sound and creating compositions. And so one day I, I asked um, if I could actually make some work for the show. And they were like, yeah, sure. Um, so I started, literally that was probably one of my first compositions, um, actually made using sound effects from the BBC sound library. I had a huge, somebody gave me a huge like effects library, which obviously died um, or was gone once I lost my hard drive. But, um, oh, no. yeah. yeah, it's tragic. Um, Back up your data, people. PhD <laughs> <laughs> student talking. Yeah. I hear you. I mean, yeah, still every once in a while, I'm like, no. Um, and so from then, uh, so that was like mid noughties. Uh, I think from then, I was like, okay, let's, let's, I'd like to think about this a bit more. So then I enrolled on a, like a sound art course at London College of Communication. And then I went on and did a master's at Goldsmiths in studio composition. And I think from then it's just been... Mm. So literally from about 2010, or say from 2005 to 2000 and... What are we now? 23? 20, 19, say 19. It was mostly sound work, mm. but then I started being invited. So along this time, I was also kind of providing soundtracks for friends who were making artist films and performance and in 2012 I actually made a f film work with Sonny Boyce called Oh Adelaide <coughs> which shows in galleries and exists in various collections around the world um, but around 2019 I started being invited to do stuff on my own like sound wise and so from there it's again thinking about how to develop work and so then again it moves away from sound to kind of things adjacent to sound. Um, so yeah, I think I made a work that kind of was looking at my own sonic biography um, and it was called Din Resonance in Blue. And in my mother who was passed away like 10 years ago in her um, collection of bits, there was a series of passport photographs with three. Obviously she used one for the passport. And I turned that into like a two and a half meter by 60 centimeters kind of sculpture but embedded in, within it were the lyrics to Amazing Grace, which is a hymn that sung at all the, all the black funerals I've been to normally sing this, this hymn. So that for me is like quite a difficult song now. Mm. It has these kind of memories. And so that was an artwork that was sonic, but not literally mm. sound. Mm. Um, and then on, you know, so then I think then one of the next things I did was uh, a solo show at Cubit Gallery where I invited friends and family to think about a sound that they associate with someone who's passed, who was dear to them. And then I somehow used all of the data from those songs and turned that into a composition. And then made a sculpture and, and so on and mm. so forth. Uh, I mean, we don't, we're, I'm not trying to put a label on you, but like there is, um, I mean, you're making a distinction between artist and composer and sometimes you're one and sometimes you're the other. Um, how do you make? Uh, how do you perceive that distinction between the two, and how does it depend on who you are talking to? I mean, it literally depends who I'm talking to. Yeah. So, um, so early on, I used to call myself a sound artist or a composer, depending mm. on who I was talking to. Mm. Um, and now it's just easier to call myself a composer um, because I think it also depends on what 
context I'm working in. Uh, I could just call myself an artist, but I don't think it would necessarily then fully explain what I do, um, which is why I kind of have then, you know, on my Instagram, it's like artist, composer, DJ, um, <laughs> which kind of sums up what I do, because it's not all of, none of them are sufficient enough to describe. If I try to roll it into one, I don't know how I would do that. So I just keep them separate. Yeah. Yeah, I guess everything's quite specific. So each word had, will have its own connotations that yeah. different people will ascribe to. So yeah. I guess you want to keep it plural and make yeah. sure you're not excluding any of the things that you... And also I get different kinds of work. You know, I get yeah. work as a composer, like in an art school, but then it's also with artists. So, that's, so there's that crossover, but then somebody would invite me to compose something for a soundtrack and that's a very particular something, you know what I mean, or performance <laughs> or... And I suppose that's where the, the interesting bits are coming from as well, the serendipity between, yeah, absolutely. between all those... Um, um, yeah, different aspects. Yeah. yeah. I guess it must be, do you find that as well, Gemma, that to some extent, you know, you're a scientist, you're, you know, PI, you have students, but you're also doing public engagement, things like that. Like, I guess... Overall, do you think that it's just like no one's just one yeah, profession, I guess, right? It's definitely. not like you always have this plurality of things that yeah. you're doing. No, definitely. And then particularly for me, because I sit half in physics and half in Department of Engineering. So I don't know who what to refer to myself mm. as. I think I do. I tend to be if somebody's an engineer, I'll be like, oh, I'm a physicist. <laughs> um, and so you kind of have that get out of jail free. Do you do it the opposite way yeah. as well? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you an engineer to a physicist? <laughs> yeah. Um, and also I'm a medical physicist and a lot of the work I do now is is kind of more into neuroscience as well and I would never describe myself as a neuroscientist but I I feel like I might have accidentally started a neuroscience lab in physics and engineering but but I think that's where the beauty and the yeah like you said the serendipity of you find these strange interesting spaces that nobody else is really covering in those gaps yeah I mean we wouldn't be having this conversation if either of you weren't you know, exactly. <laughs> the, like the plurality of what you were doing. Um, and so Gemma, your story seems to carry a similar theme of kind of identity exploration as well with your academic journey, as you just said, oscillating between these different departments. Um, could you tell us a bit about how you kind of bridged the gap between those disciplines and found yourself in the specialization of optics and imaging and maybe kind of sure. how you got there from the very, well, not the very beginning, but like <laughs> yeah. from the beginning of your academic career, I guess. So, uh, yeah, so I wanted to study physics because I really like maths and I like problem solving and I enjoyed my physics degree but I knew that I wanted to do something a bit more applied and when I found medical physics I was like yeah this is what I want to do because also like medicine and particularly the brain is so fascinating so my PhD was at UCL in the medical physics department which weirdly sits in engineering at UCL so that was quite nice because I was really exposed to like the engineering mindset the engineering way of thinking but still kind of rooted in my physics background and I've been working in the same field as my PhD now for a long time, developing these optical devices. And um, I've gone from studying in intensive care. So we're literally building devices that were used at the cot side of, of newborn babies who had brain injury. But I've really moved the focus of my lab here in Cambridge. Um, so I started here in Cambridge in 2020. Um, really wanted to pulling pull these techniques out of the hospital into sort of more naturalistic and, and areas where that you can't easily study the brain. So, for example, in dementia, where it's hard to bring people into clinical environments, but also in a music festival where you might want to understand some natural brain activity. Mm. Um, we now have the technology, the optics has progressed enough that we can make these things wearable. They're all battery powered now for the, for the music festival. Um, so, yeah, really bringing brain imaging to the masses, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Ayn, let's talk a little bit about your Cavendish Art Science Fellowship in Cambridge. Sure. Um, so the program is described as about creating new spaces to reimagine re material and immaterial universes. It's rooted in its ethos of questioning, collective imagining and decentering. For you, what does it mean? Yeah, um, so I, I um, um, so for me, it's just, it's, it's, because people have asked me, what, like, keep asking me and I need to come up with an answer that what has the impact been? And for me, it's, it's literally been about finding new people to talk to. Mm. And so the way that I normally generate work is that I might have an idea or there's a spark, there's a nugget of something and then that's springboards and something, but I end up recording something to then turn that into something else. And so, um, Suchitra and Natasha, who the other are, are on our cast, um, were interested in me engaging with physicists. Um, and so we initially came up with a series of questions, trying to look at art and physics. Um, and I asked these questions to a variety of people. Did I? I'm not sure if you asked. I mean, you've asked me questions, but I'm not sure if it was a specific <laughs> list. Yeah. I think our conversation was too early, perhaps. I think it was too early, yeah. So there were these questions, which, and I basically was, was using them as a way to kind of find my nugget, the thing that might spark an idea to make work. Um, I mean, I guess, I, I think it's going to take a little time once I finish to think about the whole thing, mm. actually. Um, but it's been fa it's been absolutely fascinating. The people I've spoken to have been so generous uh, in letting me into their labs. Because basically what I, I'm doing is recording the sounds of people's labs and stuff happening within them uh, and turning that into a composition that will then be performed back at Girton. And I'm going to add a vocalist. So it's been really interesting thinking about how I can expand how I make work and how, you know, how's it, how does it start and finding new ways to begin work. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. But no, but that's, yes, somehow. Um, but now I have two follow-up questions. Okay. The first is, have you found your nuggets? And I suppose you have because you're turning, yes. you're recording stuff and you're turning it into a composition. So what was that nugget? So I think, oh God, I haven't misremembered his name, Andrew Jardine. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, okay, Andrew Jardine. So I went to his lab and his lab is very noisy. He's got two labs and I was only in one. And he was the first person, I think, that basically talked about sound and their work, because he said to me, we can tell if there's something wrong with the equipment because it sounds differently. Mm. Um, That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> the compressor sounds are etched into my memory. Exactly, exactly. So he was like, yeah, so we can tell. We can tell what's, what's wrong and what bit of kit is not working. Mm. And then I was like, uh-huh. And so that was the moment I was like, okay, that's... And his lab was really noisy, mm. where other labs that I visited were almost like there was nothing. But because I was using um, induction coil mics, which pick up like electrical activity within whatever it's recording, even though it might be silent, there's still something that can be heard. So yeah, that it was Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> uh, and so you went on and, and recorded different labs, yeah. not Gemma's though, because there is no sound in your lab. Everything's very quiet. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's meant to Ooh, be quiet. That's true. Yeah. yeah. 
But did you, sorry, or is there sound? Yeah. Because that, mm. I think everybody, a lot of people I spoke to were like, no, there's no sound, we can't hear anything. And then I put the induction coal mic on, and then it was like, <laughs> and I let and I'd get them to hear it. They were like, oh. So yeah, so you can you can never tell. And sometimes it was very very quiet, mm. but other times it really wasn't. Mm. You also get desensitized to sound though. Like I feel, I mean, my lab is quite loud, but I don't really hear the the, the sounds until mm. something is silent, and mm. then I'm like, wait, what turned off? <laughs> but you don't really realize until everything's off that actually whoa, like the sound was so much higher before, and you mm. get so used to things, but you don't even perceive it anymore. Exactly. But like it's there the whole time. It's so interesting. And so the second follow up question was about your your background because you're you're not a scientist no. you have no no um, formal background in the field Nothing. so how is can you what has been your i mean you said that it was um, amazing but what's been your your experience interacting with physicists and have you found any common ground apart from sound i think i think the common ground that i found actually the questions helped and i think it was one it was about experimentation and not and I think it, I think it was this word is the unknown and I think it's working with the unknown and not knowing what you're going to get at the end and I mm. think that was a common thread with a lot of physicists that I talked mm. to because when I start making work I don't know what it will be until I make it mm. and then even when I'm making it, I'm like oh, okay yeah this sounds okay but then it's like keep pushing it and pushing it to kind of till it can't become something that I'm kind of happy with Mm. Yeah, and it's also the way that scientists are mm. yeah. progressing and their fundamental research, isn't it? Mm. Like, literally exactly. exploring the unknown, so yeah. Exactly. So in terms of more specifically what's going to come out of this work that our listeners can look forward to attending, I guess, or checking out later online, can you get, tell us, kind of give us a glimpse of what the competition might be like or what you're planning so far? So, uh, so basically, I think I visited about eight or nine labs and recorded I made a lot of recordings um, and they're all there's lots of sounds like just electrical signal um, which basically sounds like a drone there's lots of stuff with texture there's lots of rhythms and so I've turned that into a 30 minute composition um, but I've, it's quite minimal because I've invited um, a vocalist Maggie Sion um, to come and vocalise over it. Uh, so we're going to perform at the chapel at Girton uh, on the 23rd um, of September. Of September, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I haven't, I mean, Maggie's been working and I've been talking to her and she's very excited. Uh, I have no idea what she's going to do. I, vote, I, I haven't heard anything what she's going to do yet. Um, but I think she told me that it's definitely going to be obviously voice, but maybe some movement as well. So. It's the unknown. It's the unknown, it's the unknown again. <laughs> That's what makes it exciting. Yeah. Um, and you said also that it'll be performed in London. Yeah. It's going to be Cafe Otto on, I think it's the 26th of November, but it might be worth checking that out before you... Yeah, check the link in the description if, yeah. if it's there. <laughs> yeah, I don't, know if it, I don't know if it's online yet, officially, but um, I think it's the 26th and it's a matinee performance as well. Okay, we'll add it in whenever it's... I can't make your Girton performance, so I will no. check out the, uh, the London one. Okay. okay. Yeah, cool. 
Gemma, what's next for you um, in terms of your research and public engagement? Um, so in terms of public engagement, we're, we're doing the physics at work um, three days in September where we have lots of school kids coming into the Cavendish. So we're going to be doing some brain imaging on those kids. Oh, brilliant. Um, so yeah, we're excited More that. More data set or? I literally was thinking this morning, it's like, should we be getting them to consent and recording their data? Probably. <laughs> Probably, yeah. It just takes a little bit of a planning. Um, but yeah, we, yeah, we'll think about that, hmm. TBD. Um, in terms of our work, so like I said, the dementia study has actually started now, which is so exciting. So, and the great thing about our, our study is that we were actually going into people's homes with our kits. So we're doing like brain monitoring people's homes, which means that we're being able to recruit really, really well, which is mm. amazing. So I have some amazing PhD students working on that. And we're also continuing to build devices. Um, so yeah, always iterating and trying to get better signals from the brain. So. Yeah, we're really, we're busy, we're good. Any plans to return to a festival? Um, Maybe, yeah. So, I mean, we thought about it this year, but it was such a huge mm. effort last year. I mean, I don't know if you imagine organizing like 12 people to go to a festival, lots of whom have never camped before. <laughs> <laughs> I also took my toddler with us just for like added fun and then trying to do an actual experiment. Mm. Um, I mean, the stress about, I was so worried we were gonna miss like a single like lead that would like completely destroy the whole experiment. Mm. So I think it was a lot of, um, a lot of stress for the summer, but it was an amazing, amazing experience. Um, I'm sure we'll do it again. It was just, yeah, it was an incredible experience for us to engage with the public, but also to collect the data. So it was, yeah, benefits all around. And what about you, and What's next after this fellowship? Uh, um, I've got some performances in London, uh, I think. Um, one at the Eclectic in October. Um, it's part of, I think it's called Black Industrial slash Noise. Um, and then I've got a show actually at Fact Liverpool next year in April, I think that opens. And I've been working on that for a year and a bit. And um, basically they do like this kind of public engagement work in prisons. And so I was doing like these sonic stories workshops in prisons um, with the men and then with their family on family days. And so I've now got to somehow wrangle a lot of that material into a composition but I also got them to make work so it's making almost remixing their work mm. and maybe somehow some of the family day stuff I have no idea how but mm. that's that's the next big thing I think cool excellent well thank you for both for sharing your experiences with us and giving us the time to chat and good luck for um, the rest of your fellowship and your future projects and also for the study thank you thank you Thank you to our guests Ayn Bailey and Gemma Bale for joining us today in the studio. The annual Cavendish Art Science Fellowship is delivered in partnership with Girton College thanks to the vision and generous support of Una Ryan. We will include the links to Ayn's performances and the Cavendish Art Science program in the show notes, so be sure to check them for details. As always, if you would like to learn more about our work at the Cavendish Laboratory, please go to our website www.phy.cam.ac.uk that's phy.cam.ac.uk This episode was recorded and edited by Chris Brock. Thanks for listening to People Doing Physics. We'll be back next month. Until then, take care. <laughs>